By the way, before we start, Devin, I loved that um, you like came back to Wit Stillman with, I actually love shooting with available light. <laughs> I know. <laughs> he was like, he was like, available light it's for dummies and you're like i like it <laughs> yeah <laughs> i like that right hi i'm will ross hi i'm devin scott hi i'm sophie rambari welcome to film formally All right, folks, Sophie is back. For those who don't know, Sophie Ramvari and uh, haven't heard our episode on Small Cruise way back in season one. Your first guest. She's a filmmaker who is currently based in Toronto, whom we've collaborated with on a number of projects. So hi, Sophie. Hello. One thing that is really distinctive about a lot of Sophie's films is their mixture of some techniques that are associated with documentary and some that are associated with fiction narratives. A common term these days for films like this is hybrid film or hybrid documentary. So I would love to start with discussing how you came by the approaches you've taken in some of your films, Sophie. And we can talk especially about your newest one, Still Processing. And as we go and as we talk about this, we can kind of expand on uh, a film's relationship with the truth, how the audience forms their own expectations with that, and the idea of a hybrid doc or a truthful doc. So do you think there's a kind of like ground zero starting point in your films for this kind of mixture of techniques? I think with my work, I came upon incorporating documentary aspects into my films kind of organically, just by virtue of wanting to tell personal stories. And I think I slowly started to reveal more and more with each short film that I did. So with Nine Behind, it was a very clear and distinct, like, personal film, the narrative of it. But I was not in the film, and it was scripted for the most part. But there, I had an actress playing myself. Um, but then with each film that came after that, I kind of stripped back another layer, stripped back another layer until I was playing myself in my films about my life. So it was kind of a, a natural progression of, of trying to see more and more truthful. I, I hesitate to use the word truthful. I'm sure we'll get into why in this episode, but more and more strip, strip back the veneer more or strip back, yeah, the, the artifice or just like any sort of like distraction or um, metaphor or an analogy between me and the story I'm telling and what you see on screen and that kind of happened naturally. So in terms of documentary versus fiction, I still feel like I'm undefinable in my own uh, in my own work. Like I, I find it interesting the way that others define my work, but I don't think that I would be able to really pick a convention or a genre for my own work. Your film's relationship to genre and then genre's relationship to documentary really interests me because I mean, your first two films, um, which were you know Nine Behind and It's Him, I think you could pretty... Yeah, soundly classify those as narrative fiction. Right? Mm -hmm. um, autobiographical, and it's him featured documentary footage within it. But narrative fiction constructs. The audience is not to understand that uh, they're watching some sort of unvarnished reality, so to speak, in big air quotes. But I think Pumpkin Movie, full disclosure, I was the A camera operator on Pumpkin Movie. The experience of making that and then seeing how that was received... I think that if I had to say a major turning point in how I see my own relationship to documentary, that was the biggest one because 
and correct me if I'm getting this backwards, but what happened was on the set of Pumpkin Movie, we never said the word documentary. <laughs> that word was not uttered. And for those of you who haven't seen Pumpkin Movie, please watch it. We'll put it in the show notes. It centers around a ritual that you and your real life friend Leah undertook taken the film but i as far as i know did not exist in reality <laughs> where you at halloween carve pumpkins together and uh, recount stories about various microaggressions some aren't so micro um, undertaken by fairly toxic men in your lives or around your lives the stories were real you actually collected those from your friends and also recounted personal stories but the construct you're using for that was wholly fabricated maybe not wholly but largely and we actually, I mean, your, your kind of marching orders for shooting it were shoot it like a sitcom. <laughs> so we didn't even try and make it look like a documentary. But because of some confluence of circumstances around it, it was received as a documentary largely and is still, when people t mention it to me, they say, oh, that documentary you shot. Why do you think it was received as a documentary despite the fact that, to the best of my knowledge, none of the creative principles involved in it saw it as that? Yeah, that is, it's a super interesting example of that. And it was a lot of fun kind of going through the, the process of that revealing itself to me, like after creating it and then having it screen and then having people react to it. It's sort of a confluence of things where I knew that I was going to be in the film and that Leah was going to be in the film and neither of us are actors. I think it ultimately was just a creative workaround to have us both appear in the film, but rather than memorizing a script that we would have these you know stories written down in front of us that we could reference that actually was incorporated in the narrative of, of the film like it was part of the narrative structure so that it didn't seem awkward or, or strange that we were referencing notes in that way neither of us actually needed to perform or act and that was just sort of a workaround for for me who's someone who is not a uh, trained actor who can memorize scripts and perform them naturally you know Leah's someone I've known for my most my entire life and we have a very natural conversational uh, rapport between us so I knew that it could come across naturally. So I think that led to this sort of candid nature that you see in the film which people maybe associate with with documentary as a style. But it wasn't it wasn't intentionally trying to manipulate the truth in that way. I think the only thing that was doing that was um, revealing at the end that these stories were pulled from multiple sources rather than just our own. Yeah, I think I think it was really interesting and still is interesting to me that it's mostly landed as a documentary. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, the only if you want to get absolutely uh, strictly literal about the meaning of the word documentary, the only thing that the film is properly like documenting as far as unplanned, uh, quote unquote, spontaneous events is the, the true stories that were the basis of the dialogue. But other than that, it's more or less a pre-planned, loosely structured, improvisational sequence. What would, I mean, what would you say is the difference between that and like had, had Leah and I not been aware that we were going to be telling these stories and you just came in with a camera and you were like, tell me stories about microaggressions? Oh, that's a big question. I, I don't know what it would have changed. And I think this gets at the, the very, very blurry line because I, I was gaming this out in my head while prepping for this. Like, I still don't, in my heart of hearts, think Pumpkin Movie is a documentary in the way that I understand documentary, but it's also single-handedly changed my opinion of what a documentary is, that experience. So I don't know, it's, it's a closed <laughs> loop, but imagine if 
you know, counterfactual here, you two had ha- actually had this ritual been going for 10 years, the exact same movie. Mm-hmm. The movie's the same, but the impetus behind it is let's film this ritual we do. Mm-hmm. Would that have made it different? Because the movie's still the same, but that movie's relationship to reality is a little different. And does that make a difference? That's that's something that I wonder a lot too, is if it's if the film is still effective and if the film still has an emotional impact, what is the difference between that truth? And I definitely have come across people who were disappointed to know that Lee and I were not <laughs> carving pumpkins every year over Skype. <laughs> it's interesting because I'm like, why do you care? <laughs> why do you care if we carve these pumpkins? And why do you care if it's, it's you know, because I think an audience is, is under this sort of like what they deem to be the contractual understanding of what they're watching. Um, and if they feel as though it's it's more toward the convention of documentary, they are under the impression that what they're watching is real or true. Dan Salit in the podcast that you guys recorded said something about like the, the agreement between the audience and and the filmmaker. And he the was contract? saying- Yeah, the contract and that um, if the film reveals itself uh, to have been a farce, what do you gain from it in, in retrospect versus, versus like, are you in on the farce all along? And that that made me think about Pumpkin Movie, actually, and, you know, whether we were actually pulling the rug out of underneath people or if it was just, you know, kind of part of the, uh, the narrative structure of it. You can't just make a film um, <laughs> that, you know, feels real and then at the end be like, gotcha, it was all fake, you losers. Like, you, <laughs> you thought it was real. That's not interesting, you know, because you're not actually adding to, like, the depth of what you actually had just watched. I think the idea of the contract is, is a, it's a good lens to look at what audiences expect from a documentary, right? You watch a Western as a genre. You expect, what, horses, colonialism? Guns. Yeah, you expect guns, whatever, outlaws. You watch a sci-fi movie. You don't expect those things. Documentary, if we're going to treat it as a genre, and a genre being the contract between audience and the filmmaker, feels very special to me because it's the only genre whose generic... Understanding. Yeah, whose generic aspects are epistemological, and that's one of the two times I'm going to mention that word in this episode, where an audience goes to a documentary with the expectation of a certain relationship to reality, you know, a non-fictional relationship. But that's, that's so open to interpretation. I mean, this is exactly what got Errol Morris in trouble when he made The Thin Blue Line, right? Mm-hmm. When there's, um, for those of you who haven't seen Thin Blue Line, it was not the first one to do this, but the first major film to run into basically Academy Awards trouble for this. Because um, in the film, it's about a police investigation that goes wrong, and he uses staged recreations that do not look like you would think a documentary would look. They look like fictional cinema. And mm-hmm. they're like these controlled explosions of fiction inside a wider work. And because he included those, it was disqualified from the best documentary category at the Oscars. That film violated something within that contract that audiences understood. But since then, that contract has changed. Mm-hmm. Our understanding of that contract has changed. Absolutely. One thing that's interesting to me about the Thin Blue Line and its recreations, and, and recreations have, of course, become extremely commonplace, like fictional recreations and documentaries since then. The thing about the Thin Blue Line's recreations is that they are like, they're, they're quote unquote fiction, and yet they are meticulous reconstructions of narratives that are being presented by the real people being interviewed with, in the, within the documentary. And the it narrative is, changes. 
Yeah, and it's it's but it's accurate representations of those narratives, um, all the way up to and including what actually happened. The thing about a nonfiction book, for example, is that in a nonfiction book, if you write out meticulously exactly what happened, like the same way that's in the thin blue line, like if you wrote out the murder scene, then just by nature of the fact that you are writing this down after the fact, based on your own research and reconstruction of what happened, the the prose description of what happened as far as i can figure it isn't more fictional than mm. the filmed fictional reconstruction within the thin blue line and mm. i think what that gets at and what i'm sure we'll talk about a lot is that it's not just a matter of um, um this is uh this is actual documentation this is actual truth per se but it's about our understanding whether it's received wisdom or something that we as audience members personally develop but our understanding of what constitutes um fact even or truthfulness or reality within films and signifiers of that mm -hmm. there's no there's no test or way to prove that what you're seeing is true in a film though you're, you can't watch a film and then afterwards be completely certain that what you had seen is, is, is true because it's always going to be a bias. There's a bias perspective in showing what you'd seen. Unless you're capturing, capturing something as it happens live for the first time and it only depends on that specific action taking place to understand the truth of it in the bigger picture. I don't think there is a, there's actually a way to show truth. There's ways to show or uh, illuminate things when you put them all together to create a sense of reality but i don't think there's a way to literally turn on a camera and capture truth and i think that's what a lot of much smarter people than i have have already revealed in, in in past attempts to do that but i think what's interesting is that it doesn't make it less worthy of a pursuit i think that's what's interesting about documentary or uh, verite or direct cinema is that it's always going to be a worthy pursuit and I think as long as you're always striving for revealing something through what you are bringing attention to then that's that's interesting I'm not actually as concerned with like whether or not it is true it's like what do I believe what does the audience believe after they've finished watching a film and I think that can apply to documentary and to fiction and to nonfiction. like if you watch a fiction film do you believe what you saw that and within a fiction film that matters within, was the scripting good? Was the acting good? Was the setting realistic? And the same thing can be said for a documentary film. Do I believe what I'm seeing? I think it's always contextual on the, 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 the film itself that you were watching, how the film chooses to navigate depictions of truth or reality. And that can be even true for something that is completely unreal. But as long as it's within the understanding within the film, like the language that the film has chosen to to talk to you in, that it sticks to that and it has a point of view. I think point of view trumps truth. <laughs> <laughs> point of view is truth, maybe. Yeah. I think what you're positing, it, it rhymes a little with Errol Morris's um, theories about um, the aesthetics of truth. Mm -hmm. He has this great clip that I share with everyone at all times, including to YouTube, where he decries the idea that just because you shoot with available light and don't move anything into or out of the frame, somehow truth will uh, will, mm -hmm. will will ensue and he's very much against that idea and he describes it as an epistemological meat grinder 
I mean, and I think he also says that it's absurd to think that truth is connected with style. Mm-hmm. And the idea, and I think so much of this, though, is about telegraphing. It's about telegraphing we're telling the truth. I mean, I mean, if you contrast Errol Morris's work or even like the work of Penelope Spheris, specifically uh, The Decline of Western Civilization Part 2, in which she um, interviews a lot of basically people in the metal scene in the 80s. What she does is she stages scenes and telegraphs that she's staging them. Like she gets Ozzy Osbourne to hilariously fail to pour a glass of orange juice at one point. It's one of the funniest things in the film. <laughs> but what she's doing is she's foregrounding the artifice be- behind these real interviews. They look and feel by all appearances like they have been staged. But what she's doing is she's carefully staging real interviews in such a way that that changes our relationship to them. It, it renders these people a bit more ridiculous than they might be otherwise and lets her get away with it. Contrast that with any number of docudramas. Like I've been watching a lot of Paul Greengrass recently and I was struck by if you didn't know Bloody Sunday was a fully scripted film shot 40 years after the event. You might mistake it for a documentary. It's just that these two films telegraph their realities in such divergent and counterintuitive ways. Part of what interests me about documentaries is how we can use that to mislead people. So we can shoot a documentary in a way that misleads people into thinking that it's fiction. I think actually still processing is a great example of this, where it feels visually at certain points like a, it looks like a narrative fiction to a lot of people. And then you can shoot something that's a narrative fiction. I mean, I think I've experimented with this in lots of movies um, in a way that feels and fools people into thinking that you just caught a documentary. It has a lot to do with conventions that we've come to understand as, as an audience or as viewers. If you have shaky camera or titles on the screen or lo-fi aesthetic or, you know, even zooming and, and things like this, it's, those are associated with documentary. Obviously, they've been co-opted into fiction filmmaking as well. But I think the most interesting and like descriptive way to kind of strip that down is the mockumentary aesthetic, mm-hmm. because that's a, a way that it has been co-opted into usually comedy. Why that works so well is that people feel like they're watching real people be funny. It, it's kind of genius because it, it makes you feel more... Like you can relate to the people and it's, it, it makes you feel more connected to the humor. One of the most popular shows of the last 10 years, 20 years is you know, The Office. And it's like they use all of the same conventions as documentary filmmaking. And I think that's part of what people are drawn to is they feel like they're part of it. They feel like they're being let in on, let in on the joke. And mm-hmm. that's what... I think people are, are are drawn are drawn to. Have you ever seen documentary now? No. That show in particular interests oh me. Oh my gosh! Because you would love it, by the way. They it's uh, it's a Bill Hader, Fred Armisen, um, SNL alum show. But anyways, Seth Meyers, yeah. They essentially do documentary parodies, but they are so accurate that you can essentially intercut them with the actual <laughs> documentaries and no one would know the difference. Like you could show um, Globesman, uh, which is an episode based on salesmen, except they sell globes instead of Bibles. Um, and <laughs> it's a fully functioning documentary by for all intents and purposes. They never show their hand. In some episodes they do, but in this one they don't. So if I were to show that to someone and go, hey, what is this? Someone who has not seen Salesman and has, doesn't recognize the SNL cast <laughs> uh, <laughs> would probably think it's a documentary and it's so accurately apes the style of documentary that it is functionally identical. Is there something within the process that makes it a documentary and that the process of these are they were fully scripted, fully, there's no, there's almost no improv. 
fully mm-hmm. scripted dramatic shows featuring people not in the time periods they're supposed to be playing people who are not themselves. Is that what makes it not a documentary? Uh, this touches on one of my kind of theories of the case, which is that oftentimes um, our reactions to documentary and our assessment of things as documentary are have more to do with the signifiers of documentary that we perceive than any actual intrinsic ideal of spontaneous documentation of events, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm thinking of still processing where uh, there's a number of scenes where you are having uh, unscripted, unstructured conversations, you know, like the, there were plans to go to this place and generally do this thing, but then things kind of just unfurl more or less naturally in a number of moments, including your very real in-the-moment reactions. But one occasional reaction, and the film has generally so far been very well received, but one occasional reaction um, kind of responds to the fact that it's shot in an extremely formally controlled, shot on a tripod, very carefully um, composed manner. I've seen people react by saying like, oh, that makes it feel less uh, spontaneous and it makes it feel like it it removes a sense of authenticity from the the proceedings. Mm Mm-hmm. And like the kind of like gut reaction is, well, like who cares if like the fact that it, the camera's not being held by hand <laughs> makes you feel like it's less spontaneous. Like what you're seeing is like, is what you're seeing regardless. Um, Don't yeah. move anything into or out of the frame. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. I think, uh, yeah, I've thought about that a lot, obviously. And I think with still processing, it's it's no doubt. There's no doubt that it's uh, a sculpted and like curated visual experience. Like it's not... It's not meant to be a film that simply documents the emotional experience. And I think what people would expect from a film of that subject matter is something that is formally in line with the emotional experience. And what w- would have done that more, maybe even o- more obviously, is something along those lines. Something more shaky, perhaps even more grainy. Um, <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people have, have brought up with me that it's very clean and then that feels in sort of a it's, it's kind of a risk, risky juxtaposition to have this like raw emotional experience matched with like a more rigid mm. formal appearance because then that kind of forces the audience to question the authenticity of it which was very much the intention of that decision because i think for me it was more important that the film was like formally aligned with narrative conventions than documentary because I actually think that allowed me to be more vulnerable and also allowed people to relate to the film and to the experience more than had I just, you know, filmed it on my phone, like sobbing into my phone, <laughs> looking at photographs. Like that would have been a completely different experience and maybe one more that is would have been expected of that, the documenting of that experience. Ultimately, I, I wanted it to feel more like a narrative film because I was trying to make, I was trying to narrativize my, my experience. <laughs> I wasn't trying to document it. <laughs> Can I give like the pissy response to that criticism? Yeah, of course. Because I'm, I have to admit, I don't get that criticism on a few levels. And I think that the word you use, cleanliness, is a really good mechanism for describing my feelings about that. Mm-hmm. because like if we had like color graded the footage worse and like added a bunch of film grain would people have thought it was more authentic right um if we had just put like another layer of paint on it if you know what i mean mm-hmm. use like fake dust <laughs> to me this gets to the style question of 
the way we shot it wasn't any more or less artificial than like any number of documentaries that are shot with handheld cameras, right? It was still just two of us. Mm-hmm. It's just that we put the care into composing the frames and we're two people who I think are pretty good at using available light in a way that looks aesthetically pleasing, right? <laughs> we, we, it's not like we've like added 10,000 watts of HMIs out the window. We're still shooting on just the, the campus. We're just, we're just good at making it look pretty good. <laughs> and I find the fact that the weirdly, when you get to the point when you're good at making it look clean and good, which doesn't require any extra artifice in my opinion, it just means that you know how to set your camera settings, <laughs> you know, and you know that, hey, this is a balanced composition. That doesn't mean there's more artificial. It just means that we've arranged the elements in a certain way that doesn't actively try and obscure the artificiality that is there no matter what. I think what people are experiencing, though, is because we took the time um, and it was clearly constructed, that forces people to wonder if the emotions are also constructed like within the, the compositions, I guess, because... Mm-hmm it takes a greater leap of faith to think that we had set up this camera and then I just had this very natural, spontaneous reaction rather than if you whip out a camera in the middle of it happening or, you know, if it, if it feels formally more part of the emotional sort of like storytelling, I guess, of it, that it would feel more of an accurate documentation of it. But that's not what we were trying to do. Someone wrote something really interesting about my film recently that she said that there's a tension between the artifice and the authenticity, which is deliberately courted as if the filmmaker is saying, I'm going to try something. I'm going to introduce art, but trust me, this is all real. It threatens to make the audience wonder, is this a performance? I think that's that's a really interesting way to put it because it's like, I as a filmmaker... At the moment, anyway, I'm really interested in drawing attention to the fact that people are watching a film, and I'm going to do my best to tell you the truth, but you're still watching a film. Sophie, what you said there really kind of, I think, clarified it a bit, where to me, the question is, do people want something more authentic, or do they want their documentary filmmakers, in quotes, to fool them better? (laughs) This this is exactly what I was going to comment on, where I was going to say that when you work on a documentary, there's an irony that you're often being asked to convince people that you're a journalist by becoming an art forger, (laughs) by adopting these uh, artistic signifiers. I mean, all three of us, I think, identify much more as artists than as journalists. I identify as an art forger. I don't know about you. (laughs) That's me. But but it probably behooves us to at least acknowledge the uh, role of journalism and people's expectations of what they view as a journalistic enterprise in mm-hmm. all of this. Mm-hmm. I, I could set up a straw man of saying that, you know, people expect uh, as soon as they see a documentary, they expect the same set of standards and ethics that they expect from any piece of journalism. But I think it is worth thinking about if people go in a documentary and they do have some sort of expectation, therefore. I'm seeing a documentary, therefore the person who made it has a set of ethical standards that I expect them to uphold the same way I would expect someone writing for a newspaper to uphold a a set of ethical standards, even if they're writing like a feature article in a magazine or something. And that, that does somewhat complicate things because the range of what a documentary is and is attempting to be is so broad that trying to negotiate your relationship with truth um, and and the standards uh, within which you're working uh, 
can be really tricky. And this is something that I haven't fully resolved myself other than it will, the thinking just, you know, shrug, it will always be just an ongoing back and forth, ever-changing sort of negotiation. It's very different to attempt to show the truth than it is mm -hmm. to tell the truth. And I think if you're a journalist, you're ultimately tasked with telling the truth through the medium of, of words. Whereas with film, if you're asked to show the truth, it's, it's a different medium. You can't really cross-reference in the same way. Like, for example, if I witnessed with my naked eyes a murder, and then I decided to report on it, I would type out the story and I would tell what I had seen. Versus if I saw that, but didn't have a camera with me, and then had to show people about it, it's a completely, it's a different, it's a different pursuit. But I think journalistic, you know, values are still put onto documentary filmmaking. And I think there are places where it is appropriate, but I think that we've kind of evolved into an interesting space now where I think certain aspects need to be updated, like in terms of exploitation and manipulation and these kinds of terms when it comes to documentary filmmaking. Like there's so much there to like talk about I could I don't know it's it's fascinating to me and I think one of the key things when we talk about exploitation of subjects in a film has to do with consent that's really really interesting to me in terms of how you can get a subject to consent to what they're uh, you know accepting to, to take on that role of portraying a version of themselves in a film and I think a lot of people watch a film and kind of naively are like well that was exploitative but that assumes that that person is not able to give consent to be recorded and to be depicted in the way that they have the agency to, to decide. I think the big difference, though, is in a fictional film. As an actor, you're just portraying a role and you're being paid and then you go home. Whereas a documentary, you are giving a huge part of yourself. You are essentially a, a collaborator, but then the filmmaker is the one who really gains all the benefits no matter how collaborative it was. So I kind of feel like there should be a new conversation about, especially in these sort of nonfiction hybrid realm, about paying people who are playing versions of themselves. And I th I'm sure that's yeah. probably very controversial because I'm, you know, there's the idea that like if someone's being paid, then they won't actually be the truthful version of themselves. But I don't even think that's what people are trying to depict most of the time. Yeah, Alison Duke, when we had her on the podcast, um, felt similarly, especially about paying members of marginalized communities who are mm -hmm. having their stories told for profit. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, to me, it seems fairly clear cut that, that a dogmatic approach to uh, paying documentary subjects are not as helpful. I mean, in the thin blue line, Errol Morris, who does pay his subjects, I don't know if he paid Randall Adams, but Randall Adams, essentially, Errol Morris saved his life. And Yet Randall Adams end actually ended up suing Errol Morris for use of his image because, to hear Morris tell it, um, Adams felt that Morris had stolen something by by making his story such a you know big public deal. And I think R Randall did probably clearly felt some sort of like yes, almost like he had been put into something without his consent, right? He had interviewed, and then he's in one of the biggest documentaries in world history, mm -hmm. and that must be—I mean, you—you you, you can't know what you're signing up for. Mm -hmm. Another example that I think comes to mind to me is um, is Cloud Landsman Shoah Project, where apparently Jan Karski, who one of the side projects is about him, 
he delivered the Karski Report, the name of the film. Uh, he was apparently the only subject in that entire project who asked to be paid and mm. was paid. Um, everyone else donated their time to this project. And to me, that's an interesting gray area because it's a film that essentially was at all times during its making on the nice edge of not having enough money to continue. And Lensman, I think, probably rightfully felt it was for a greater purpose than just his own glory as a documentary filmmaker. He was gathering an oral history of, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Holocaust. And I don't have an answer to that of whether Jan Karski should have expected to be paid for his, you know, two hour, however long it was interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that you, you raise a good question about consent in terms of um, how, how can you get across uh, the gravity of what someone is, embarking upon if they decide to be a subject of a documentary film assuming you know there's such a variety of outcomes like your film could be screened to all virtually no one or your screen your film could win an academy award so there's a huge uh sliding scale of like impact on a person's life did i ever tell you too about the time that i pissed off the town of wells bc by making a documentary about them (laughs) vaguely (laughs) but please tell me again i was there mutual friend daniel jeffrey shout out uh former guest runs of he ran i don't know if it's anymore please keep running it a film festival up in wells bc um small town a few hundred people i i i project the films every year etc one year i took my camera up there and kind of made an impromptu documentary it wasn't really a documentary it was really a film that appeared to be a documentary about daniel and i's miserable time there I think I was going through some sort of depressive phase at that point, but it was, it's a, so it was a Bellatar parody and to kind of capstone the, the miserableism of it. I put a set of title cards at the end that said two weeks after this was shot, the town of Wells, BC um, burned down in a raging wildfire. <laughs> Devin, Devin, Devin. And then we showed it at the next year's film festival in wells and boy oh boy did that split the audience uh they were laughing <laughs> it was at not it, it should be clarified this was not a widely distributed uh film like you had no you no, made no efforts to have it be the vast majority of people who saw it were the 20 people in that room that night <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah it was it was literally just made for the festival but i would say that was a learning experience but i knew what i was getting into um <laughs> I don't know. I guess I would say I regret it, but I don't. Um, it was a fun prank. But, it, you know, I think there is some, something in there about the, that whole idea of consent where the, the, I think why people got angry at that, long history of me pissing off people with my movies, was that people felt that I was lying, spreading misinformation about their town without their permission. I didn't talk to anyone about that. I didn't tell anyone except Will that that title card would be in there. And, they and all Daniel. Saw Daniel knew. Did Daniel know? Oh, no. I think he uh, did, yeah. How do you let that through? How would he? <laughs> it's all his fault. But yeah, the um, I don't know. I, I think I greatly overstepped a bounds there uh, for the sake of uh, dippy frat boy humor. And <laughs> do I regret it? No. I continue. For what it's worth, I continue to think you didn't majorly overstep a boundary. I think I did. Imagine you live in that town and you think that your relative might think Wells burned down. I don't know. It's an ed- ed- I suppose. I think I'm ready for my first um, contradiction of this podcast. (laughs) Oh boy, go ahead. (laughs) Truth is important and truth should be attempted to be shown if if that's your goal. I think it just is curious to me that it seems that that's what everyone thinks the goal should be. Mm. But all that is to say, I think we should talk about camera person. 
camera person I think is a, a beautiful film in and of itself but also like a really wonderful tool for talking about and teaching documentary not only because it's made up of so many other documentary films and <laughs> so many other document so much other documentary footage but I think it's a film that really does a beautiful and simple job of drawing attention to the artifice in documentary filmmaking which kind of in turn is more revealing of the truth um so a uh, camera person is a documentary a recent one 2016 i think by kristen johnson and in it she essentially compiles I, you could almost call it an essay film it is an essay film in many ways um she compiles footage that she has shot for other projects usually un, unused short ends and b-roll and recontextualizes it as a personal essay film the majority of the film is essentially outtakes from documentaries she has camera operated directed or been the director of photography on my favorite moment is actually the second shot of the film. And I think this is not an unpopular opinion um, where um, there's a long shot of a road somewhere in middle America. It holds on a field for the longest time. And eventually a lightning bolt strikes down from the sky and you can hear someone go, and you don't know why. And eventually um, when the, after the thunder comes, you can hear, someone you know i'm assuming it's christian johnson sneezing and this creates a narrative right someone she wanted the sound from that lightning so bad she was willing to hold her sneeze for like 20 whole seconds and that's it's hilarious and wonderful and like humanistic but it really gets at the whole thesis of her film which is that this is all stuff that when you shoot something for a documentary you're farming out your talents the to give what you know classically is an objective viewpoint right this is this road in this case but the film constantly just recontextualizes these shots to be about the person shooting them, foregrounding the idea that this is all subjective first-person stuff. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's my rant. You know, abs- I, 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 I was going to bring up the same shot because it's just so, it's such a perfect illustration of the thesis of the film. Like it, it also introduces you to the main character, the camera person. Um, <laughs> you, know, you know from that point onward that there is someone behind the camera because I think so many films are attempting to get you to forget that there's a camera person, that there's someone behind the camera. I'm really interested in films. They show you how they want to navigate depictions of truth within the film itself. And I think another great shot that uh, illustrates that is when she's lying on the side of a side of the road and she's got this beautiful shot of these these bulls or or, um, cows coming toward the camera. And you can see that there's a couple you know, strands of grass in her shot. And then you see her hand reach out in front of the camera and she rips those pieces of grass out and then a couple more pieces of grass until she gets the perfect frame and then continues on shooting. And it's like, that's what you would normally not see. You would see, the, like they would cut right after that and then show you just the beautiful shot. But by including that, you see how she's altering the reality to create the most beautiful version of that truth. It's still, it still is as real, but she got rid of that grass. She altered the entire environment to create a better shot and she's not hiding that. She's emphasizing that. On one end, she's altering the truth by altering what you would have naturally have seen, but she's also being incredibly honest. So it brings to light a different kind of truth. One thing that's really great about that film is that it comes from, in a lot of ways, the tradition of cinema verite. And cinema verite and direct cinema are often mixed up, but just to be They're clear, different. cinema verite. They're different. Yeah. <laughs> Huge, long-going pet peeve to that people mix them up, but 
Cinema verite uh, is a style of filmmaking that sort of was popularized slash kicked off by the French film Chronicle of a Summer, where the idea is that you uh, uh, you directly confront the apparatus of filmmaking of the documentary film so that the camera, the process of um, making the film, the consequences of the film making apparatus itself on reality are all thoroughly addressed in the making of the film. So people will be asked about what they think of the film. I, well, I'm going I'm to quickly do an aside here and say like, this isn't like theoretical, like this is literal. The film opens with them running up to people, accosting them on the street, going, are you happy? And it, it ends with the subjects of the film being shown the film that they just appeared in and, and mm-hmm. asked to talk about it and to what extent it manages to um, unearth any kind of truth. Mm-hmm. And it's great. It's a brilliant film. But what I like about uh, uh, Camera Person is, is that it puts a less forensic kind of emphasis on the idea of acknowledging uh, the apparatus that we use to find truth uh, via the camera and the microphone. And that's that's something that's uh, that may seem obvious, but it's a really difficult thing to find. And what it takes, I think, is just an eye that is extremely well tuned to the potential poetry of mundane moments. I mean, I think Daniel, again, like friend and and past guest, um, is like almost preternaturally gifted at this, at at seeing how tiny little ticks and gestures. I mean, he usually does this in a comedy uh, respect where he finds what's funny about it, but it's often funny in a way that's genuinely probing and sometimes <laughs> disturbing about uh, about what he's seeing. Sophie, have you seen his documentary about releasing chickens? No, I think I just saw the one about his breakup. <laughs> the okay, the chicken documentary is fucking amazing. I would love to see this. I would love to see the chicken documentary. <laughs> yeah, like it is so it's genuinely like an amazing piece of filmmaking, I think. But yeah, the breakup one is incredible for reasons that you already know just because it uh I've ne- I think it's like one of the greatest ideas for a film I've ever seen to recreate to write a script recreating pieces of a breakup that you had and then film yourself reading it. Uh, with the camera trained on the person who was the other part of that relationship slash breakup and switch between black and white and color based on whether what's being read from the script or what's in reality. Mm-hmm. And over time, it becomes unclear why it's switching to black and white and why it's color. Like there's not a clear break of like, oh, they're not reading the script anymore. Like they will just seamlessly move into the past or into the present within their discussion. That is just such an insanely great idea for a film that it blows me away every time I even think about it. We should maybe talk about the the old camera and what happens when there's a camera. The, you change the results by measuring it principle. Yeah, I think that was also in, in relationship to Chronicle of a Summer. It's, it's less about what would have happened um, if the camera was not there versus what happens because the camera is there and how you can measure performativity versus authenticity based on the sort of ways that you try to get around the fact that there is a camera there. I think that's what a lot of documentaries that are, that are trying to get at the truth are, are attempting to do is, is remove the camera, but you, you can't remove the presence of the camera. You can only try different things to navigate being comfortable with the camera or address the camera's presence. You know, all these different uh, little tricks <laughs> to try to replicate something that feels more close to an authentic depiction of, of of truth or of an experience, I think. And I guess in relationship to still processing... We ran into that constantly. 
Yeah, it was important for me to include in the opening from the the letter that my dad wrote. He mentions that we we grew up, or I grew up, with a camera in my face all the time because my dad was always taking photographs of us and filming us, and so I became quite used to having a camera there, maybe more so than a regular child. And I think it was something that was a big part of growing up for me, but then it kind of led into. I think my ability to be in front of a camera without a ton of self-consciousness. And I think ultimately that's what allowed me to make still processing so that I was able to kind of allow myself to go to those places emotionally. And I know that my intentions and that my experience was authentic to the most you know, possible degree, but I have no control over what other people feel when they see those things, you know, the emotional moments in that film, whether or not they feel authentic or not. But for me, it was less about making sure that people thought it was authentic and just for myself knowing that it was. And then whether or not people think it is or not, is that's where it stops being my experience and starts being like a film. What really sticks with me emotionally about the experience of shooting it is often the, the lengths we had to go to dissociate me from you during that. <laughs> the scene where you're um, in bed and you um, have what you, a panic attack uh, and you then you know, go on your phone and talk to talk to your friend and talk through it. Mm-hmm. I remember it, it was less a matter of you not knowing I was there per se than me distancing myself emotionally from the situation. Because if I was watching you doing that, I would have gotten really emotional and distracted you. So I had to like play fucking like talking heads in my headphones and read the news or something and occasionally check photos (laughs) so that I could stay dissociated enough that I think this also helped you feel like you have space but Mm -hmm. I had to make sure that my emotional reaction wasn't ruining the take I don't know I think that speaks more to your ability to dissociate yourself from that than anything the camera I mean but we had to constantly do this like during the scene when you're um opening up the box, the, mm-hmm. the, the box in the film for the first time, we had to, we had to set up the cameras and essentially take a break. So you could get acclimatized to where the cameras were and we didn't have the kind of artificiality of the film set fresh in our mind. Mm-hmm. It was the closest I've ever felt like to being an actual fly on the wall. You know, the, the thing that direct cinema people say they want, but I even often don't um, want. It was, it was like every, every scene we did, we had to figure out a new strategy. Like when Ben, your brother, was, was in, in the frame, we had to work a little differently. He was actually actively collaborating and setting up the lights and everything. <laughs> and then he would have to come and be, his, be the subject that he just lit. Mm-hmm. But weirdly enough, I, I feel like that artifice of, okay, let's figure out strategies makes its way into the formalism of the film. Even when it comes to things like the camera being far away at a lot of time. The more emotionally heightened a scene in the film, you can almost judge it by how far away the camera is. On your, uh, we used, I think, like a 58 mil lens when we're, you, we were shooting the close-up of you opening the boxes. And yet when we were shooting on the subway, for example, we were on a much wider lens because it was they were less emotionally wrought scenes because the mm-hmm. camera could get closer to you. Anyways, I have no thesis here. It's just like uh, we had to we had to constantly be fighting a like sh- it was like hitting a moving target of how can we shoot this scene without the camera being intrusive. Well, I think it was very important that it was just you and I on set too. I don't think we would have made the same film had there been any bigger of a crew than that. I think the trust that we have is friends, but then also as collaborators, it made a big impact on my ability to kind of go to those places. 
But like, even if we had a sound person, I don't know that it would have been the same. Mm. Yeah, that, that trust was definitely, definitely important. But also knowing that you were intentionally trying to distract yourself, did it have an impact for sure? Like you allowed me that space, but also shooting digitally made a huge impact because we were able to just run the camera for like an hour mm -hmm. at a time and let the experiences kind of unfold. There was never any time, like, time where we wanted to redo a take or adjust something and do it again. Like that was never important or necessary because we could just record all the way through. And so similar to Pumpkin Movie, I guess, where I didn't want to have had the experience of, um, you know, hearing Leah's stories prior to filming because I knew I would have a more authentic exp uh, expression and experience if I had just heard her tell them to me for the first time and I would be able to laugh and enjoy her stories because I had never heard them before. Um, similar to that um, in Still Processing, I had not opened the box previous to filming and I had not seen the photographs. So I knew that that would ultimately allow for the most authentic possible reaction to seeing them because had I seen them and then said, okay, let's recreate and turn it on, it wouldn't have been remotely the same. And whether or not that comes across in the film or whether or not that's important to people watching the film, I, I'm not sure, but I, I think it, it must have some sort of impact on what people are reading as like real <laughs> or true. We picked our battles in that way. You, you, you took great pains to not see what's in that box, but we also waited for the right time of day. We actually took location scouting photos of where we wanted to film months in advance. So we were doing things that would be considered artificial, but also you were saying, no, no, this has to not be artificial, these little bits. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I can tell you that I did most of the original music for the film, and um, I was one of three editors along with Sophie and uh, Khalil Haddad. One thing that I often think about when I'm working on editing a film is trying to make it work both ways. And what I mean by that is uh, if I've made a film and it's a comedy and, and there's a lot of moments that I want to be funny, but it's a dark comedy and I think it's moments that the audience might, that might make the audience nervous or tense or, or that they'll be afraid to laugh at or that they just will be too nervous about to laugh at, um, then try to think, okay, how can I make this work either way, right? And so what you try to figure out is, is this moment working dependent on it being funny to the audience or is them either feeling too nervous to laugh or feeling fine with laughing? Are both those things the results of something that's working? Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. And similarly, uh, with still processing and to a lesser extent, when I did editing work on Pumpkin Movie, I tried to almost entirely set aside considerations of everything we've been discussing here. <laughs> <laughs> The reason being that I felt it was really important to make sure that if someone watched the film and felt that it was just a very carefully performed piece of fiction, that um, that there was a structural and emotional integrity to how it was all placed together. And that contrary-wise, if someone felt that the, uh, the entire thing was um, spontaneously recorded, that similarly um, it would work. And not that I expected anyone to fall into either of those two extremes, but uh, the idea being that I was trying to find um, all the underlying kind of ideas of emotion and 
the thematic uh, ideas of the film outside of its own acknowledgement of its apparatus that needed to work. And not to say those things aren't partly dependent on the success of that self-acknowledgement and of the the tension between the uh, factual and poetic modes of expression, but there needed to be just a solid bedrock there. And I, I, I say all this, I mean, a lot of my understanding about the, the entire, all the stuff we've been talking about and the subject of uh, documentary in general comes from a class I once took on unconventional uh, documentaries with a professor named uh, Christopher Pavsek. And towards the end of it, I forget which film it was, but towards the end of it, so this was like something like seven, eight weeks into the class, uh, there was a, a, uh, <laughs> a heated debate over whether one of the last films that we saw as a class was a qualified as a documentary or not. Oh, which one was that? I don't, I do not remember. <laughs> and, uh, uh, because what I remember was eventually Professor Pavsek interjected and said, well, I'll tell you, my hope was that by the time we got to this point in the class, we would be beyond trying to judge what we're watching by figuring out uh, the binary question of whether it's a documentary or not. <laughs> so, which was which had quite an impact on me because it uh, it's it was just such a light bulb moment of number one uh, the complexity of the issue and number two that there are so many other factors to the success or failure of a film uh, than whether or not we believe it qualifies as a documentary, so. Listening to you talk about editing actually brought to mind something interesting for me is like, we're talking about how to achieve like objective truth in a film. And I think for still processing, part of what I found most difficult about editing was being objective about the truth. And I think that's why I really needed that collaboration in the edit um, between you and Khalil. Um, but especially for the editing work that you did with the home video footage, because home video footage is inherently um, nostalgic and emotional for the person that is in the home video footage. It rarely means much to anyone else. Not just its material, but even the texture of a home yes. video. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the texture of it and the you know the content of what's being shown is is kind of neither here nor there, but. I was having such a hard time trying to contextualize it uh, or even select the clips that would express the emotionality of it. Um, so your your objective opinion as as an editor was so important there because I was like, you know, you'd think who who is better to tell the objective version of the story than me because I experienced it. But I wasn't the best person in that <laughs> in that situation. But when we think about putting together an objective reality in a film, it's it's rarely ever just one person's objective, you know, version of the truth anyways. I just thought, you know, slowing down stuff makes it emotional. Which which bits of this look good slowed down? Yes, and it's like totally, yeah, it's totally manipulative. It's totally, I, I think it's funny that we often use the words manipulative um, when we talk about documentary filmmaking or or um, truth in, in film. But I think perhaps a nicer word to use instead is is editing and framing. <laughs> Yeah, you know, they're just choices, and I think there, you know, there can be cases where that manipulation is is perhaps unethical. Or we all agree we don't want to lie, right? That's the thing we don't want to do. We're okay with not expressing a factual truth or, 
or whatever, as long as we're not lying. The what question becomes, what what is, when truth? is it lying? Well, that's, yeah, I mean. <laughs> or is, I mean, not to quote, I mean, I, I feel like I could quote Errol Morris all day, but the quote you related, Will, about uh, Errol Morris's opinion on ecstatic truth is amazing. Yeah, Errol Morris, he said uh, something very close to the, he and Werner Herzog are friends and mutual admirers. And he said, my friend Werner Herzog uh, has an idea about the ecstatic truth. The idea that you don't present the accountant's truth uh, to, to get to the heart of what you're depicting. I have another word for the ecstatic truth. I call it lying. Which... <laughs> <laughs> But I still don't know what I feel about exact truth. Um, yeah, I'll include the Minnesota Declaration in the show notes. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating subject to go into the idea of does making up uh, with the survivor's consent uh, uh, an after effect of a survivor's reaction to trauma. In the most famous example, a former prisoner of war in one of Herzog's films is in one scene opens and closes the door over and over and explains that when he was a prisoner, he wasn't able to do it, and therefore he relishes it now every time he does it in real life, which was entirely fabricated, but is very affecting. I taught a lecture on documentary filmmaking when I was TAing at York, um, and I was just trying to contextualize what documentary filmmaking was to this class of about 100 students that had only seen, like, uh, Marvel movies, <laughs> 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 trying to explain, you know, sort of the... The difference between a fiction film and a documentary film so i was starting from like just the building blocks so but something i i did to try and illustrate that was i showed a clip from a herzog film uh into the abyss where it's just a very conventional clip of a, a priest who's talking about the experience of having to be there when prisoners are executed and he stands with them and gives them their last rites and and that's that's a big part of his job so anyway, Herzog is interviewing him and he shoots him sort of in a medium close up in front of a cemetery where a lot of these prisoners have been buried with unmarked graves. And I show the clip and then try to deconstruct sort of what was happening in the clip. And it's a very basic talking head shot of this priest, but we break down sort of all the decisions that went into creating a very emotional scene. So we see the priest in front of these graves. That's already like a visual juxtaposition that we're seeing brings up emotions. And then at a certain point it cuts, it cuts to close-ups of the graves and then a bit of music. And the fact that it cuts at all means that he's probably cutting out parts that were less interesting. So I, you know, break down these sort of elements. And it's like, okay, so is this still the truth to you or would have been more truthful had they just not cut anything and interviewed him in his office with like a white wall behind him with no music? You know, I think it's, it's interesting to think of how a documentary filmmaker or a filmmaker can ultimately bring more truth to uh, to a story by placing it in a more visually interesting and audio-filled space to illuminate that experience and that truth. But by doing that, you are imparting your bias and you are still staging. You're still staging this conversation and it didn't happen naturally. It's not a naturally occurring conversation. It's, it's, it's very manufactured. Are there naturally occurring conversations? Do they just come up in nature? No. I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think if the only instance you can think of is maybe like a, a hidden camera or those kinds mm -hmm. of things, but, uh, you know. An, an interesting way to look at this is digging into the differences between the cinema verite strategy versus the direct cinema strategy, where 
let's look at the direct cinema strategy. It's what people think they're talking about when they say cinema verite. It's you're a fly on the wall. You are observing and trying to, through one strategy or the other, obfuscate your role. You know, someone like, you know, a D.A. Pennebaker will make himself so central in an environment that people stop noticing him. Mm-hmm. That's my favorite way of doing it. <laughs> uh, desensitization. Um, someone like, you know, the Maisel's brothers might go back on a telephoto lens and just, mm-hmm. you know, observe. You know, that's basically all of Gimme Shelter with the exception of some scenes that really fall into some of the Verite strategies with when they show the Rolling Stones their own film. Then the cinema verite strategy is essentially screw all that you're lying if you're trying to make anyone think that you're not changing the result by observing it let's Mm -hmm. lean into that Mm -hmm. and to me it's like it's easy to get caught up in the okay how can we think of a way to move as little in the frame as possible right a way i prefer to think of it is that if you are being honest about your own role in the construction of this film then that, I think, enables you to maybe get at a deeper truth than doing all you can to obfuscate it. Films that get me properly annoyed are ones that show no self-awareness and no theory of the mind when it comes to this. I, I got quite angry uh, watching one film that played at Hot Docs a couple years ago. Um, I don't think I should say the name of the film, but it was on a very sensitive subject. And it essentially threw all of the cliche, you know, documentary infographic stuff at it. They showed death tolls by these little cute graphs. They had a Voice of God style narration that frequently went between stating plain facts and like very, very plain editorialization and interpretation without any attempt to kind of build a framework of truth around it or to even admit that they were using these methods. So Mm. you had this kind of unself-aware deployment of these signifiers of facts mixed in with other, other shit. I find that much more outrageous than films that at least have self-awareness of the fabulistic tendencies that they're undertaking. That's why the ecstatic truth doesn't really bother me. You know, because Herzog is constructing his own internal logic there. It's why, you know, I, I like both direct cinema and cinema verite because they're both constructing their own, again, uh, self-sustaining frameworks that enable but hold them. hold on. Yeah. The trouble with the internal logic of Herzog's film, I'm playing devil's advocate here, but the trouble with the internal logic of Herzog's films and the ecstatic truth is that while there's an internal logic for his way of processing and depicting events and and truths the actual factual nature of those so-called truths is not revealed to the audience the audience is in no way aware and is given no meaningful signposting that the door thing is bullshit is it okay to bamboozle your audience that way yeah it's a it's a i think that's a good question and one that prevails through all of documentary ethics. But then I also wonder, is there like a scale of what is a a greater lie versus a a lesser lie? Just by turning on the camera and editing, you are, some could say that's on the smallest scale of lying (laughs) because you're mediating a truth through, through a mechanical means versus literally looking into the camera and lying. Yeah, I, I will say that like the opening and closing door thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd be lying if I said it didn't bother me a little. I find it at once really powerful and I'm glad it's in the film. And 
something a little bit uh, that doesn't just entirely just sit comfortably with me, but it it bothers me far less than, I won't name the film, but I saw a documentary late, uh, uh, recently that was arguing against a particular kind of technology that is used in everyday life. And part of the argument they were forming was they, they discussed the entire history of this technology and its provenance. And part of its provenance happened to be that some of the original technology was developed by scientists in Germany uh, in the mid-30s, some of which was then used during World War II, with the heavy implication that this technology was developed by Nazis. Therefore, you know that its use must be akin to the evil intent of the Nazis. Mm-hmm. That was that's the impl- that's the implication, right? Like that, like this is very much a foreground, a part of uh, this piece of technology's history. And I found that way more bothersome mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that the film did that than I do that um, a survivor chooses to uh, uh, agrees to depict a part of their um, of their life post war expresses their personal experience with something that isn't that isn't true yeah i mean this is where i do agree with herzog in his idea of the accountant's truth we fixate way more on things that are factually untrue but ultimately not very harmful than things that are factually true but are presented in potentially extremely harmful ways right and i think that's part of what the appeal of the subject was for all of us going into this episode is that the literal discussion of what is true and how do i how am i persuaded of something that is true or not true is arguably of less immediate consequence than the formal constructs around what you're presenting as true or what you're presenting is not true. I think it's a, g- a good question though, because I think who are you getting to do the lying for you is, is, <laughs> is important. Are you uh, doing it through the means of the formal means of editing or shooting, or are you asking for your subjects to give you the information that you want to benefit your own idea of how you want to tell that story? And that's not even ultimately wrong. It's just like, that's a, a choice that you're making as a filmmaker of how you want to um, illustrate that person's truth. How are you going to illustrate what that person has gone through or is going through? And it's hard to imagine that that wouldn't have to be somewhat collaborative, but it often isn't. It's often left in the hands of the of the filmmaker. We're all assuming, too, that the filmmaker is operating in good faith, but what we haven't really addressed so far, and we could do a whole episode and should do a whole episode on this at some point, is the ability of filmmakers to leverage signifiers of authenticity for the purposes of misleading or disinforming or propaganda. Mm-hmm. Where, I mean, Will and I have watched every single Denise D'Souza film. and We should have. Um, a fam- infamous right-wing propagandist. And I just want to say, I do not condone any of his films and neither does Will. And the way he uses stuff like even just reverse shots of a character nodding, like, yeah, yeah, yeah we, you know, and the nodding to the use of a voice of God style voiceover to Michael Moore style essay film structure, um, essentially weaponizes the methods of that we're talking about here, assuming everyone here is 
trying for the goal of not being unethical mm-hmm. for blatantly, transparently unethical means. I don't even know where to begin as far as understanding what we should do about people who essentially want to reverse engineer this conversation <laughs> to mislead. A great, great, great example of that is in the fictional film Broadcast News, which if you haven't seen, you should watch uh, right now. And it's also in terms of journalistic ethics, because, you know, one of the characters is uh, recording a news segment where they are hearing about a woman's experience of sexual assault. And he tears up during that conversation. And then they had revealed in the film that they were only shooting the camera onto the woman who was telling the story. And they said, let's turn the camera around and get that again. Can you muster up that tear for me? And then he gets that tear going. And then they cut to that, so they have that shot. And it bakes right into the narrative of the film, it was like the, the ethics of that, like recreating that shot just to, to have it. It did happen, he did tear up. Yep, yeah, it was real. Yeah, yeah. and then Quarter they quote. show it again. So, I don't know, it's, uh, it's blurry, <laughs> it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, I wanna couch everything I've said by saying I'm not an expert on any of this, and I think, um, <laughs> It's, it's been really fun and really um, fascinating for me uh, as a filmmaker to kind of just navigate through these murky waters for the last couple of years through uh, short films with very low budgets that I can try, you know, things out with. Because I don't, I think that my opinions on all this are, uh, you know, ripe to change at any minute. And you shouldn't listen to me and, uh, <laughs> and try your own, try your own methods of obtaining truth because uh, no one knows uh, what they're doing. <laughs> and it should be an uh you know the the seeking of truth should be it should be an unflagging pursuit like you should never feel satisfied with a dogmatic means of obtaining it and it should always be an accountable pursuit too that's those are the keys really i think to or just make fiction movies do your own percival <laughs> make dogville uh <laughs> hang a hang a lantern on it be brechtian make fake <laughs> shit yeah, I don't know about fake versus real even when it comes to fiction versus documentary. Like, I don't know. I think as long as you're being uh, mindful and going forward with like the best possible intentions. And I, I think for me, it's been easy to navigate these questions with my films for the most part because they've almost exclusively been about my own experiences. So I can exploit myself all I want without feeling a hair of guilt. But when it comes to other people's experiences i feel very very conscious and very afraid to even accidentally exploit someone (laughs) or someone's story or someone's experience i I feel like it's easier sometimes to comment on the for me anyway to comment on the ethics of depiction uh in fiction films because it's a little bit more clear like you know if you see a film particularly right now around the conversations of representation um and like authorship i think those are conversations that are we're very much still in the middle of but are in some ways much easier to navigate if you were depicting something that in a fiction film is not your experience you know you have to to own that <laughs> as the author of that work and it's that's where i think the conversation around representation should be heading toward is just you know giving people who should be telling those stories the means to tell them I guess that can be documentary or fiction, but I think with fiction, it's easier to kind of hide your 
involvement in that experience or in that community or whereas with documentary it still happens in documentary too but with fiction i feel like it's just maybe more accepted there's there's more authorial distance in fiction a lot of the time at least with getting good documentaries where the distance between the author and what you're depicting right so it's like i mean i was actually introduced this through the lens of bob dylan right where bob dylan will oscillate between no authorial distance he's singing about himself and massive authorial distance where it's you sing about some arcane thing and he feels like it feels like a traditional song passed down through the ages right so with a documentary you can often have no ethereal distance i mean this is the michael moore way of doing things it's the actually that's what kristen johnson does such a good job of she erases the ethereal distance mm-hmm. um, but with fiction you often just by the nature of having fictional characters you're erasing yourself as the author a little mm-hmm. um, depending on the film again if you're like orson wells and filming yourself all day great that's not as much distance <laughs> The most important thing you can bring to your film is a point of view that is specific and unique and and hopefully yours. <laughs> and ultimately, that's what will tie all those pieces together if you are telling a story from your point of view. Even if it's not your own story, you're telling it in a way that is consistently from your perspective and your point of view that other people will be able to experience it through that point of view, rather than trying to address all kinds of different possible points of view or different readings or different uh, categorizations that might land on your film eventually. Uh, the most important thing is that your your point of view is, is, is there and it's consistent because I think that's there's nothing more telling of a, a film that will fade into history than a film that has no point of view. Okay, thanks for joining us today, Sophie. Am I supposed to? T- am I supposed to? <laughs> good. Great. Good. We're leaving no, it in. perfect. Paige Smith is our associate producer. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening today. And, hey, if you enjoyed what you just heard, leave us a rate and leave us a review on your podcast service of choice. You use Apple? Leave us a rate and review there. You can help us keep going if you go over to patreon.com slash filmformally. You can find us on social media, on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at filmformally. We love chatting to you. We would like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the indigenous nations of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. We'll see you next week when Paige will be taking over to talk about the depiction of the internet in the film Eighth Grade. She'll be joined by guests Brietta Stewart and Bronwyn Henderson.